Today, October 22, is a very significant day in the history of our beginnings. Welcome back to the Adventist History Podcast. This is your episode called Prophecy and Plagiarism, Part 4. Last time we met Pastor Walter Ray, and we learned about his study into Ellen White's use of sources in her writings. Now, Ray was one of those Adventists who was deeply, deeply committed to Ellen White. He had written his own unauthorized compilations of her writings for crying out loud. And so this search for her sources began as a way of understanding her better. Ray met with a committee in January 1980 at the Glendale Hospital, we'll call it the Glendale Meeting, to discuss what he had found so far. Now, the committee thanked him for his work, but Ray was shocked to find out that he was no longer needed to conduct his own research. The church would take it over from there. Now, of course, this didn't mean that he lost his research or he wasn't allowed to continue researching. It's just where he was studying, the church wanted to be the one to continue going forward and produce a report and all of those sort of things. So Ray was free to continue doing whatever he wanted, but the church was no longer going to be leaning on him to conduct the research they wanted conducted. Well, Ray felt that the church wanted to cover up what he had learned and from the church's perspective, they wanted to put the study in more trustworthy hands, as Ray was making some claims that seemed, to them, reckless and irresponsible. One of those claims, made in May 1980, was that Ellen White virtually wrote none of her book, The Great Controversy. All right, so Ray's research upset a lot of Adventists, who, largely unaware of what had transpired in more academic circles over the past decade, felt their faith was being threatened by allegations that Ellen White used the words of other people. Keith Parmenter, president of the Australasian Division, remember that name because it's going to come up again, he tried to put his constituents at ease by reassuring them in the pages of the Australasian record, quote, It will be no secret to many record readers that one of our ministers in the United States, Pastor Walter Ray, has for some time been researching the source material of certain Ellen G. White books, and he has reached conclusions which, if valid, would destroy all confidence in the inspiration and authority of the Ellen G. White writings, end quote. Now, like me, you may be thinking, well, he's just picking on Walter Ray because we all know all the heretics in the Adventist Church come from Australia. Stay tuned for that as well. Uh, but no, no, I'm just kidding. Parmenter was explaining that Satan would try and destroy confidence in Ellen White, right? That would be one of the last day's deceptions. So, pointing a finger at Walter Ray, might he be one of those end-time deceptions? Parmenter told his members, stop circulating tapes and papers which might suggest Ray is right, right? Stop, stop spreading the pro-Ray information. We, we need to recognize this as a deception, and, uh, and, and the way that we do that is by not being party to the, the things that Ray is saying. Okay, well, Keith Parmenter's editorial brought an unexpected response. I would imagine it was unexpected, at least. A woman in New Zealand wrote in to say that, she, uh, that while she appreciated Parmenter's attempts to convey certitude, as you put it, right? There's nothing to see here. Everything is fine. His defense of Ellen White, quote, seemed to insist on maintenance of the status quo 
at the expense of new enlightenment, when there is a crisis of identity, of belief, and even of existence, can we afford to avoid the issues, implying that sincere study and research which threatens old positions constitutes the attack of the devil to lead us away from the spirit of prophecy, end quote. What is this lady from New Zealand saying? She's saying, yeah, I appreciate that you're trying to calm everybody down, Elder Parmenter. I appreciate that and, uh, and, and to express confidence in who we are, Seventh-day Adventists. But, she says, you're, you're, you're pushing us, it seems, to maintain the status quo when there is a crisis of identity of belief and even of existence, she said. We cannot hope to avoid these issues. She actually says we cannot afford to avoid these issues or by pigeonholing them as an attack of the devil. Now, the woman's letter represented those Adventists who didn't buy the idea that Ellen White was a fraud or a false prophet. Right? They're not anti-Ellen White, but but who nevertheless didn't want to see the church bury this issue with the kind of platitudes, you know, hey, everything is fine. There's nothing to see here. We've known all about this for a long time. It's not a big deal. Right? They, she didn't want to see that either. These are the types of Adventists back then who, who wanted the conversation to be had out loud in public. The controversy wasn't really between those trying to destroy Ellen White and those trying to defend her, between knowledge and ignorance, between criticism and loyalty. Many Adventists loved Ellen White, but who also wanted to get to the bottom of this, who recognized, like this woman did, that the cat was now out of the bag. I have no idea where that expression comes from. Why is there a cat in a bag? I mean, I'm not disagreeing with, you know, there could be good reasons for the cat to be in the bag. I just don't know why it's being said. Anyways, I digress, okay? Parmenter's editorial caused quite considerable turmoil in parts of the Australasian division, as some interpreted his words to mean that he denied Ellen White had even borrowed at all, right? Like that everything Ray said is absolutely wrong and motivated by the devil. Well, Arthur Patrick tried to control the damage in Melbourne by saying that President Parmenter was, was only saying that Ray's personal conclusions would destroy faith in Ellen White, not Ray's research into her literary borrowing. Patrick was deftly trying to separate Ray's conclusions from his data, which is a, a I guess, a tactic sounds like a dubious word, but a, a strategy that many attempted to adopt, that there's a difference between what Ray has researched and what Ray is concluding from that research. And it's incredible to me that so many people on the other side of the world, as Walter Ray, you know, down under, had already grasped the basic truth that Ellen White had borrowed. Like, this was not something that they thought was open to debate. And they weren't going to let their leaders deny that. Now, Patrick grasped the problems of Ellen White sources, I think, quite well. He urged Parmenter that, quote, this demands that the church be open with both evidence on the issues under study and the conclusions reached by representative groups, end quote. Patrick went on to see the problem as somewhat self-inflicted, and it ultimately boiled down to the Adventist understanding of Scripture. This is what he writes, quote, In theory, Seventh-day Adventists have never believed in verbal inspiration of Scripture or the writings of Ellen G. White. But in 
essence, the concept of many has been that. We may in the short term appear to win if we use Ellen White as the normative factor in determining Adventist doctrine, but unless we are faithful to our stance on Scripture, we will in the long term destroy Ellen White, end quote. It is not enough, Patrick argues, for Adventists to have a fundamental belief affirming the Bible as the revealer of doctrines, which is how the, the newly minted 27 fundamental beliefs put it. We Adventists actually have to treat the Bible as the highest written authority and not merely claim that we believe it. This, by the way, is what so annoyed Walter Martin during the Adventist Evangelical Conferences. The, the gap on some issues between what Adventists publicly stated, and, and in that case, what Leroy Froome publicly stated that they believed, and, and what they actually wrote and said. You know, Patrick is here saying, look, we say we don't believe the Bible and the White are verbally inspired, word for word, and yet we all know many Adventists believe both were verbally inspired, right? Are we going to practice what we preach? Arthur Patrick shared the concern of many writers in this time period, even among people who disagreed with Walter Ray's conclusions, that this was largely an own goal by the church. It's like if we hadn't smiled as we watched our members believe things that we knew weren't true, we wouldn't be in this predicament. Fred Veltman agreed in his own report on his research into Ellen White's sources. Veltman highlighted a statement by Arthur White that the Lord had not seen it necessary to supply Ellen White with dates and names of all the events she witnessed in vision. And this made it seem like, yeah, okay, Ellen White borrowed, but, you know, it's only the names and dates. You know, why would the Lord tell her something she could just look up on Wikipedia very easily? Of course, she didn't have Wikipedia. All right, but just go grab a standard history textbook. You can find out the date Martin Luther stood before the Diet of Worms. You don't have to reveal that to Ellen White in vision, right? So she that's why she went to the historians to supply that kind of information. It's names and dates. But in light of what McAdams, Numbers, and Ray all discovered in the 1970s and now the 1980s, Veltman marveled, quote, It is no wonder, with statements such as these circulating in Adventist textbooks and writings, that many would be surprised over what Walter Ray and Donald McAdams were reporting in the late 1970s, end quote. Ellen White had not gone to a few historians to find names and dates, but whole paragraphs, even ideas, sometimes conclusions. Veltman's point is that we as a church, and even though he mentions Arthur White in particular here, we as a church have underplayed this issue. We have downplayed this issue. And so when people like McAdams and Ray come onto the scene saying, ah, oh, she borrowed quite a bit, and it's more than just names and dates, Adventist members are not prepared. So this is both the story of what Walter Ray said as well as the story of how unprepared Adventists were to hear what he said. While we can never know for sure, one wonders if the church had facilitated a conversation about these things in 1919, maybe the 1940s when Milton Kern raised it, or in 1970, or any of the other opportunities between when this issue came up, if we even would have had a Walter Ray, after all. 
The thing that seemed to bother him the most wasn't what Ellen White wrote per se, but how the church had handled what she wrote. Now, before Ray could cross that Rubicon, and we'll get to that, Ron Graybill at the White Estate tried to find some common ground with Ray. Graybill read Ray's earlier 1965 article on Ellen White and her sources, which is something we talked about in the last episode, and he thought it could be the basis of an understanding between us. The article where he defended Ellen White, by the way, as the is this would be the basis of uh, of a compromise. So Graybill wrote Ray, and he wanted to know: Does your 1965 article still represent your views on Ellen White? Ray replied to Graybill, "No." So what changed for Ray between his 1965 article where he says, yeah, she borrowed, but it's no big deal. God still inspired her. What changed between that and 1980? Well, contrary to what people thought, Ray insisted that he didn't have a problem with the fact that Ellen White consulted other authors. This is what he calls the originality problem. As Ray put it in his own clipped, confident style, Quote, the problem of originality has never been my problem. The amount may be. The method certainly is. The cover-up is absolutely so. End quote. Okay. Let me unpack that. Ray wasn't troubled at all by the fact that Ellen White used the words of other authors. He was a little bothered by how much she used from other authors. He was definitely bothered by her method, which I'd take to mean her practice of rarely citing those other authors she was borrowing from and, according to Ray, passing them off as her own revelations from God. She never clearly delineated when she was borrowing and when she wasn't, and so people that, that enabled people to just assume all of this is something she saw in vision, right? Because she didn't tell anyone to the contrary. But the thing that bothered Ray the most was what he saw as the cover-up, the way in which Ellen White's defenders, be they church leaders or pastors or whoever, kept this information from the Adventist public. The part that, that, that bothered Ray the most was not what Ellen White did necessarily, but how Ray felt the church had handled these issues. Ray had been an enthusiastic supporter of Ellen White, making his own compilations of her writings. And whenever this issue had popped up, church leaders had tended to reply in this breezy, nothing to see here way. Oh, of course, we've known about it. Nickel dealt with it in his book in the 50s. It's no big deal. Just move along. And Ray's 1965 article reflected that attitude. So what changed? Well, Ray had come to believe that the church had known, or at least should have known, that the issue was far deeper than borrowing a little here and a little there. He, who had spent so much of his ministry going out on the limb for Ellen White, praising her, encouraging others to believe in her, searching his write, her writings himself and making these compilations. He who had done all that felt betrayed by the church that he had done all of that for. Well, as church members became aware of Ray's conclusions, fingers began to be pointed. An Adventist doctor in California apparently released an open letter to Adventist pastors, theologians, and Bible teachers declaring that the church was in crisis mode over Ray's allegations and, and the call had gone out, quote, to salvage E.G. White at all cost, end quote. 
Fred Veltman, chair of the religion department at Pacific Union College. I don't think I mentioned that. Uncharacteristically decided to respond to the doctor and told him, basically, stay in your lane, man. You do medicine, you stay in medicine. You don't hear me going off of talking about a crisis in medicine. Veltman mused about how there were those on the conservative side of the church attacking any teacher that showed even a hint of concern or confusion about Ellen White. And then there were those, like this doctor, who attacked the same teacher for being complicit in the church's defense or cover-up of Ellen White. An Adventist minister or teacher could be attacked from the right, from the left, at the same time. It was an impossible, intolerable situation to be in. Meanwhile, the conversation over Ellen White's use of sources was spilling over into the public view. In August 1980, a California newspaper carried the headline, Scholars Shake the Foundation of Adventism. Now, August 1980 was a big month for reasons we're going to get into in a couple of episodes, but the article repeated Ray's claim that Ellen White had borrowed up to 80% of her writings in one book, and alarmingly, the article used the P word, plagiarism. All right, let's hit the pause button just for a second. Adventists have recently, relatively recently, right, insisted upon a distinction between plagiarism and literary borrowing, with critics insisting that literary borrowing is just a happy euphemism for plagiarism, which they define as theft. Borrowing is friendly, right? Certainly sounds a lot better than stealing. I've not found any evidence, by the way, that the church was intentionally trying to muddy the waters or avoid unwelcome conclusions by using the term literary borrowing. Rather, a distinction between borrowing and stealing has stretched back to late antiquity when Macrobius noted that the poets like Virgil were inspired by the gods and yet borrowed the writings of others. It's a remarkably relevant statement to what we're dealing with in Ellen White's writings. Now, I've written a few pages on this that I did not include in the episode because I figured, you know, we can't pause for like 10 minutes and talk about the difference here. It just really slows this whole narrative down. And the episode's long enough, if you haven't noticed, uh, as it is. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to turn this conversation about plagiarism and literary borrowing into an Avenus History Extra episode. So go ahead and subscribe to that. You can check the show notes for the links. Anyways, I've been using the term literary borrowing here because I think it is, the, for me, the morally neutral term. That's what I intend by it. I honestly haven't studied Ellen White's use of sources that much myself. As you may glean when we talk about Ray's book or Veltman's book later on, uh, it's complicated, right? And I haven't studied it that much myself. So uh, fundamentally, like most people, I've been studying the people who studied Ellen White's use of sources, and I'm here to tell you what they've concluded, not what I've concluded. And that's why I prefer what I see as a more morally neutral term here, because plagiarism can imply judgment. It can imply somebody did something wrong. And this episode is not about my thoughts on Ellen White and her borrowing. It is about reporting on what other people have thought about Ellen White and her borrowing. So I'm going to stick with what I feel is a more morally neutral term because I don't want to inject myself into this discussion. All right. Enough people have had this conversation. You don't need me. The Rubicon was crossed on October 23rd, 1980. I guess this would be the day after the Great Disappointment, or maybe this is the Great Disappointment, right? The day after... uh, You expected Jesus to come, except it's 1980, not 1844. 
And the reason why the Rubicon was crossed is because the Los Angeles Times gave Walter Ray's research massive coverage with an article on page nine titled Adventist Finds Plagiarism in Prophets Books. Now there's that P word again. The Times gets to the point rather early on in quoting Ray as saying, quote, she was a plagiarist, end quote. <laughs> no, no nuance, no explanation, period. Ray would go on to make sure to frame the issue for the Times. Quote, the important thing is that she in the denomination always claimed that she didn't copy and she wasn't influenced by anyone, end quote. Now, this was a claim he would repeat over and over and over again. And while many Adventists probably believed it, this wasn't technically true, was it? Because how many church leaders by now have we talked about uh, admitting her literary dependency for some years? In fact, like six months before this article came out, Bob Olson released, a, what was it, a 14-page pamphlet. And this got mailed to like everybody in Australia who, who got a copy of the record, for instance. And I'm not sure how it was disseminated in North America or elsewhere. But, you know, this was a wide distribution. And in it, Bob Olson gives some examples of Ellen White's borrowing. Okay, so, so one can't say that the denomination refused to accept that she copied because they were accepting it. Now, was it was it enthusiastic? No. <laughs> um, but they did accept it. Now, the, uh, the article signs off with a twist. It's a letter from James White to Ellen, urging her to write. This is shortly before he died. Of course, he didn't know that. But he wrote to her, quote, For there is wealth yet in our pens. End quote. He wanted her to write because there is wealth yet in our pens. Now, this line implies... I think is is a weird way for the article to end. Okay, because it really it implies that Ellen James White saw their literary output as a money making scheme. But there's no development of this theme. There's no um, additional proof or context offered. It just kind of ends with this quote. Now, in all fairness, I need to add that Walter Ray downplayed his role in the article. He claimed that he told the reporter to interview Fred Veltman, who had just been chosen to complete. Ray's study of the desire of ages. But nevertheless, the reporter wanted to talk to Ray. So he came by to visit Ray. They had an interview. The next day, there were some follow-up questions, as happens. And uh, the, the reporter called Ray and said, uh, would you say Mrs. White was a plagiarist? Ray asked the reporter, he said, how do you define the word plagiarism? And Dart gave him a definition from the Random House Dictionary, defined as, quote, someone who appropriated the language, ideas, and thoughts of another author and represented them as one's own original work, end quote. Ray said that, well, by this definition, she was a plagiarist, but that, quote, there was no morality implied or immorality. If you believe that the word to you means an immoral act, that's what you're bringing to the word. That's not what the dictionary says the word means, end quote. Ray, therefore, tries to portray the Times article as something he didn't design, perhaps only reluctantly participated in. The reporter even dragged that infamous line about Ellen White being a plagiarist out of him after carefully defining it, and it was a definition that never made it into the article itself. It just opens with Ray saying she was a plagiarist, and people can bring to that word, as Ray says, whatever judgments that they want, but he did not intend that to be a, a moral condemnation of Ellen White. Now, Ray may very well be right that this is not how he would have written such an article. This is not how 
Uh, maybe it didn't represent his views very well, and that any blame for misstatements belongs to the Los Angeles Times. But even if that's true, there are two things that complicate that conclusion. One is Ray was very happy to give subsequent interviews to the same man for the same paper in the months ahead. So, you know, if you feel like you've been misquoted, if you feel like maybe you were not given the proper context for some of your statements and that, and those statements have caused a world of trouble for you, as, as they will in a minute here, then why would you do subsequent interviews with that person, with that reporter, and with that paper? The other thing that complicates Ray's defense is that when he got a chance to publish his own book, <laughs> it was far more aggressive than the Times article. Okay, so stay tuned. We'll talk about that. Anyways, the LA Times article quickly spread across the country. It was syndicated in many other newspapers, and it was quickly it quickly put pastors and church leaders on their heels. Local reporters contacted their nearest Adventist pastor to ask for comment, right? It was kind of a a, a wonderful thing to fall in the lap, I would imagine, of a of a local journalist, because you get to you don't have to do the work, you don't have to do the investigation, you just get to print somebody else's article. And because it was it was universally relevant, because everybody had an Adventist church in their locality, all you had to do was contact a local Adventist church for comment, and uh, then you had another thing that you could print. So uh, it was, uh, I, I would imagine, helpful to a bunch of newspapers all across the country. It was in their benefit to reprint this article. And uh, the church responded by mailing out a stock statement to pastors to use when, when they needed to reply to their local paper. They would just put their church name and their name in there, and uh, it, it carried some quotes from church leaders and stuff like that. Because, well, <laughs> you don't always want pastors <laughs> to respond on behalf of the denomination, okay? I'm a pastor. I get that. <laughs> I get that. You never know what someone's going to say. And uh, you, you kind of want to not make the situation worse by having 100 pastors in 100 places all give different responses, which may egg Ray on or it may egg the press on. You want to be careful here what you say. And so hence this stock statement was sent out. Now, in the last episode, I noted how Walter Ray's wife read the L.A. Times and realized that the church would never let him continue pastoring after he openly charged Ellen White with plagiarism and that he was going to be fired. And Ray responded, we talked about it in the last episode, Ray responded, what for? <laughs> yeah, uh, you might know why. And on November 7th, this was, uh, I guess, a couple weeks after the article appeared, various general conference leaders got on a call. They discussed the issue of Walter Ray. And the question that they wanted to ask themselves and to answer was, Quote, has Walter Ray, by his actions and attitudes, in fact, rendered himself incapable of serving as a Seventh-day Adventist minister? End quote. The answer, the committee concluded, was yes. Sometime after that, the Southern California Conference, that's the conference Ray belonged to, their pastoral committee met with Ray, and they then reported back to conference leaders. On November 13th, less than a week after the general conference had had that phone call about Walter Ray, the conference committee voted to remove Ray's ministerial credentials. Arthur White took the interesting step of publishing a letter he had written to his children about Ray's article. Of course, the article was designed, I think, to be a public defense of Ellen White, his children's great-grandmother. And the reason why I say that is because there's, it's really just kind of devoid of any personal detail. 
And it concluded, quote, We are sorry that so many who read what the papers carry get a distorted view. There is no use trying to correct it in the press. Better let folks forget it, end quote. Why Arthur White thought folks might forget it is a mystery to me, my friends. <laughs> folks didn't forget it. When an article like that alleges that the founder of the Seventh-day Adventist Church was a plagiarist, and it gets printed all across the country, this is not something the public just ignores. The article also got picked up, by the way, by The Guardian in London, that bastion of British journalism, and so now it was going international. Don McAdams, then president of Southwestern Adventist College, or now university, responded to the Los Angeles Times articles by defending it, sort of. He wrote, quote, The LA Times article is not irresponsible journalism, nor should we charge Mr. Dart, who's the author, with attempting to write a biased and destructive piece on Adventism, end quote. Now, McAdams seems to have aimed that part at his fellow Adventists, whose first instinct was likely to discredit the article and its author. Nevertheless, McAdams did find fault with the article. The Times had quoted Neil Wilson, General Conference president, as saying that Ellen White's, quote, literary dependency is of alarming proportions, end quote. Now, I quoted from this letter where that statement was made in the last episode, and it's clear that Neil Wilson did not say that. Rather, he was characterizing Walter Ray as saying that her dependency was of alarming proportions. So McAdams also didn't appreciate how the LA Times article quoted him in the article as well. McAdams insisted that he still believed in Ellen White even after his own detailed study into her sources. At Southern Adventist University in Tennessee, Ed Zacherson, a friend of Walter Ray, gave a very, very frank interview with the student newspaper, The Southern Accent. And let me just say that my journalistic integrity... I can't even say that with a straight face, <laughs> prompts me to notify my dear listeners that I once was a section editor for the Southern Accent, though I clearly wasn't paid enough to have any kind of bias in its favor. With that ethics disclosure out of the way, back to Zacherson's interview. Anyways, though, though Ray had been recently uh, fired, he had been taken, had his ministerial credentials taken away, Zacherson cautioned against thinking this was over. Quote, We may decry the necessity of dealing responsibly with the problems they raised, but that does not change reality. Somebody must deal with their charges. They have not been answered adequately, especially Elder Ray. End quote. Now, Zacherson had an astute grasp on the situation while he praised Neil Wilson for admitting that everyone was surprised at how much Ellen White copied, right? This is a transparency from the General Conference president. He also said that it was disingenuous to suggest, as uh, <clears throat> some church leaders were, that we've always known about this and it's no big deal. Zacherson said no one he knew had even an inkling of an idea that she had borrowed so much. It truly was a shock. Zacherson was also honest about the strategic landscape. He's looking at this, uh, just kind of surveying the battlefield, as it were. Right now, Ray had a bunch of material and a years-long head start in his research over nearly everyone else. He could make claims, and Zacherson said, right now we can only appeal to Ellen White's integrity in her defense. Zacherson admitted that this defense, quote, doesn't work very good 
because Ray's allegation implies that she was not a person of integrity, end quote. So the landscape, as Zacherson saw it, was that Ray, because of his research advantage, could just make claims about copying here, copying there, whatever. And because in the church we didn't have people who had done uh, similar research in the same book, books, right? Because McAdams and Numbers, well, Numbers had left the church by this point, but McAdams had done his own research in a, in a different chapter, in a different book. Uh, th there isn't so much we can say in her defense, right? We can't argue from data because we don't really have data to answer Ray. And the problem is we can say, well, you know what? She was a good spiritual woman. I mean, she was a woman of high character and all these sort of things. So there's no way she would have done anything uh, unethical, right? But Zachary's is saying the, the reason why that argument, that defense of Ellen White doesn't work is because Ray is attacking her, her ethics, her sense of being a good person, her integrity. And so what, what do you say then? And Zacherson's just being honest about this in the student newspaper, okay? That's how crazy this is. In the student newspaper, he's just being very open about this, that we don't have a good defense right now because we haven't done the research that Ray has. Zacherson predicted that Ray was going to work very hard to prove that Ellen White knew what she was doing when she borrowed, right? So he's saying in advance, like, everyone knows that Ray's working on a book at this point. And Zacherson's saying, I have a feeling... I'm predicting that when Ray comes out, when he launches his offensive, again, he's thinking of this in strategic terms, this is going to be a main avenue of attack. He's going to say not only did she borrow, but she knew what she was doing when she was borrowing, i.e. she knew it was wrong in some way, shape, or form. This, he said, the church should be ready for. Again, strategically, surveying the landscape, we need to prepare for this attack. The student who was interviewing Zacherson raised the point which uh, Bob Olson championed. Well, doesn't didn't the biblical writers borrow too? So what's the big deal if Ellen White borrowed? Yes, Zacherson said, but this was not a promising defense. He said, quote, I would rather not make ties where if she tumbles, the Bible tumbles after, end quote. Boy, that was an admitting statement. First of all, because it admits that it's possible that the evidence will show or will cause Ellen White to fall. Wow. So he's admitting that at least there's a possibility here. He, he doesn't seem to believe it himself that it's going to happen, but he's admitting that it's a possibility. And so I don't want to tie Ellen White to the Bible because if she goes, I don't want people to lose the Bible too. Again, he's thinking strategically. So what strategy would Zacherson recommend? Well, first, the church should recommit to the Bible alone as the rule of faith. Second, the church should take an honest look at itself and how it has handled Ellen White. Let's not make claims for her that we cannot prove from the Bible, claims that open up Adventists to the charge that Ellen White is a second Bible for us. Okay, again, here's Zacherson, yet another person saying this is largely an own goal. This is something we've done to ourselves. And he says, quote, Cover-ups do more harm to her authority than looking at evidence. I don't want to believe that we have anything to hide, end quote. In other words, let's play this one straight. Let's be transparent about it. Let's be honest about it. Zacherson counseled people to calm down. Don't rush to judgment. Don't make sweeping claims. Zacherson saw this situation in a positive light because if at the end of this, it may be that Adventists are going to be better informed about who Ellen White was, and that's a good thing. 
Now, Zach Rison also gave a talk in Chattanooga two days after his Southern Accent interview was, was published. And early on in his talk, he quipped, quote, people are being decredentialed because of their alleged search for truth. Maybe I better just lay low. Truth is too expensive, end quote. Oh, boy. In recounting his ultra-conservative experience as a young minister, he mentioned how he burned all of his novels and chastised his wife because she didn't read Ella White four hours a day like he did. Quote, I was becoming perfect and I resented anyone else who was not even trying, end quote. Out went the TV, magazines, newspapers, bottles of Coke, steaks, and wedding rings. Does this story sound familiar? Zacherson did not hold back. He asked whether Avenus really based their faith wholly on the Bible. Quote, Our actions will tell us more about where we stand on Ellen White's writings than any theological statements we can make. Perhaps our example does more to make of none effect the testimony of the Spirit of God than 36 column inches in the Los Angeles Times. End quote. What is he saying there? We, we like to lash out and blame the secular press. Or maybe we want to blame Walter Ray for bringing this difficulty upon us. And, and what is he saying? He's like, we need to look in the mirror. Because maybe, maybe the way we have handled Ellen White, not what we've said about Ellen White, not what we've said we've believed, but maybe the way we have handled her has brought these difficulties on us more than what people on the outside are doing to us. Perhaps we are hurting faith in Ellen White because of how we have used her far more than the Los Angeles Times is doing to Ellen White. Now, it may not surprise you to learn, <laughs> after all of that, that Ed Zacherson would join an exodus of professors out of Southern during the 1980s. Zacherson ended up at La Sierra University. The religion department at Southern in particular was under immense pressure in the early 1980s from Avenus all around the world who smelled liberal blood on campus and in particular in the religion department. Maybe our friend Dr. Judd Lake will talk about that sometime as he was a student during those days. No pressure, Dr. Lake. If you want to talk about it, I'm sure people would love to hear about it. But we can't get into that right now. I mean, there were stories of, uh, of, of people spying on professors. Uh, it was a mess. November 1980, very busy month. Okay, let's jump ahead to December, <laughs> a few weeks later. In December, the Los Angeles Times came back. Follow-up article appeared on Christmas Eve, so Merry Christmas, Avenus. The opening line read, Does it really matter to a religious group if its prophet is found to be a plagiarist? This article featured more quotes from church leaders, all saying either that she didn't borrow that much, or if she did, it didn't really matter. Jack Provancha, a professor at Loma Linda, just kind of shrugged, saying all that matters is that Ellen White exercised control over what she borrowed to best express her thoughts. Well, the article then veered into a wider conversation about Adventism, Mormonism, and Christian science, these three American religions with prophets, and whether or not Joseph Smith and Mary Baker Eddy plagiarized. An Adventist in the Loma Linda area, however, probably spoke for many when she said, Quote, no matter where some of the ideas came from, the whole package of the Desire of Ages wraps up to be a beautifully heartwarming picture of Christ as the friend who died for all of us. A person cannot read that book without becoming a better Christian, end quote. Well, I think that comment is helpful to understand why more people weren't bothered by Walter Ray. A lot of people were. 
Um, but, you know, there was uh, church leaders at this time uh, who were consulted on this issue. Many of them, many of them were all predicting disaster, maybe a splitting of the church. That was a great concern as well. Uh, because, you know, you think, well, gee, when you chip away at the foundation of people's faith in Ella White, that's what's going to result, right? But I think if this woman's comment is indicative of many people's Adventist experience, it's like the sum total of Ella White was greater than uh, her individual words and where they came from, right? The overall experience reading Ella White was more significant than, than uh, I guess, the nuts and bolts that make up her writing. We'll talk about that in a little bit. I know I'm saying that a lot. We, but we, we're like, we're 45 minutes into this thing, Matthew. Uh, what do you mean we're going to talk about it in a little bit? This is usually where we're wrapping up. Oh, my friend, we still have a ways to go here. So anyways, this this woman is basically saying, uh, look, if you've been deeply affected by Ellen White's writings, it's brought you closer to Jesus, then you might naturally ask why it even matters where she got her words from. God used her in in the in the finished product. So what else matters? Okay, well, let's uh, jump over to 1981. And the new year greeted Walter Ray, of course, by with news that he was being fired. He had had his credentials taken away, but I, I, I'm guessing that somehow he was still an employee, right? He was, he was uh, still being paid by the church, and so now he's formally fired in January of 1981 over what the General Conference called his negative influence. Ray, of course, would interpret this termination in quite messianic terms, quote, it was only necessary that a man be punished so that others could stay alive and so that Ellen and the church could appear innocent of any wrongdoing, end quote. All right, it reminds you of that text in the Bible, one man needs to die for the nation. We need to commit this one injustice so, so uh, the over greater good can, can persist. The White Estate and other church leaders fielded a lot of questions throughout 1981. Speakers were dispatched to camp meetings and churches to conduct seminars on the topic, and then appeared uh, a book titled The White Truth, which was obviously designed to counter Ray's forthcoming book, The White Lie. And I think I read somewhere it wasn't originally titled The White Lie, but uh, that's what he settled on. Anyways, knowing that that's coming, John J. Robertson entitled his book, The White Truth. Now, he had been going around Southern California to naturally refute Ray. Robertson, I think, basically recycles the defenses of Ellen White that were already going around. I don't know that he necessarily adds anything new in his book, so I'm not going to spend time going through it. The White Truth was published by Pacific Press, and a book reviewer for Avenist Currents, which was a small spectrum-like journal, wrote, quote, is it any wonder that Pacific Press is $8 million in debt? Probably the best thing about the white truth is its brevity, end quote. Ouch. But 1981 was also the year that the church released the Ramick Report. Vincent Ramick was a Roman Catholic lawyer who was asked to study the legal case against Ellen White as, uh, as someone who might have infringed upon others, other authors' copyright. Ramick spent 300 hours studying the issue, reviewing a thousand cases, and uh, he also said he read The Great Controversy. Now, I thought uh, Arthur Klim on SDA Q&A made a good point when he asked how Ramick managed to do all of that in 300 hours, because what is that, like 20 minutes per case and then zero minutes left to read The Great Controversy? Look, I'm not a lawyer, and those billing lizards, I mean, sorry, I meant wizards, can probably go through those cases pretty quickly, okay? 
The, the point is, Ramek came to the conclusion that Ellen White, quote, was not a copyright infringer, end quote. Ramek's exoneration of Ellen White on this charge was based on the idea that Ellen White did not intend to deceive anyone, but she reworked the material that she had borrowed for her own original purpose. She wasn't stealing and trying to hide what she did. Besides, Ramek realized many of the books she copied from were not copyrighted. That technicality, important as it may be in a legal sense, was likely little comfort to the multitude of Adventists who were believed that she was a prophet and were being told she didn't technically steal anything. <laughs> um, you know, Adventists who believed that Ellen White was the best of us were now being comforted with the words that she definitely wasn't the worst of us. And, you know, of course, not everyone bought Ramick's report. The most common criticism that I've seen is probably that Vincent Ramick's firm had done business with the church for decades. Now, of course, this doesn't prove that his judgment was swayed, only that he had a conflict of interest. Another common criticism was over the decision to bring Ramick into this at all. Saying that Ellen White wasn't guilty of literary piracy in the 19th century isn't exactly the highest defense of her prophetic gift. If I was trying to set you up on a blind date, and the best that I could say was, well, I think you guys will get along. She definitely did not kill someone last week. Would you be more confident going into this date after I said that? Okay, clearly that's a ridiculous example. The, the point is that the legal situation of a woman who had been dead for 60 years wasn't exactly the most salient issue that needed to be addressed. And critics charged that all of it was just a smokescreen, to distract church members from the real issues, which concerned her in integrity, which concerned the, the ethics of borrowing, which concerned her inspiration, right? They said these are the real issues, not whether she could have been charged in her lifetime with, uh, with, with piracy. Now, of course, the reporter from the Los Angeles Times also wanted to know about the Ramick report for yet another story on his plagiarism storyline. So the GC legal department worked over some answers to the reporter's questions, and Roger Kuhn at the White Estate read them to him over the phone. Naturally, Kuhn also surreptitiously recorded his side of the conversation, just in case what he said needed to be proven later on, right? If you don't know how this article is going to go, and if he says Roger Kuhn said she's a plagiarist, he wanted well, he wanted to make sure he recorded his side of the conversation just for safety's sake. What I find most amusing about this whole uh, Ramek report project thing was how it leaked to the Adventist church. <laughs> so apparently Ron Graybill and Bob Olson were speaking at the Chattanooga First Church, which again, ethics disclosure, uh, I served there as a student pastor in my college days. I don't know why that's an ethics disclosure. Like what is that? <laughs> how does that, how are you in any danger of that experience shaping the story I'm going to tell you it's just really a, a, a way for me to say, hey, I've been there. Anyways, uh, Gray Bill got up at the Chattanooga First Church and said, quote, I discovered to my surprise just last week that, did you know this, Bob, that the General Conference has retained a non-Avenous attorney downtown to look into this plagiarism business? Did you know it? You did know it? You didn't tell me about it, end quote. <laughs> Olson, who... <laughs> who was obviously sitting in the audience, sputtered a reply, <laughs> quote, there, there are, I don't know how you found out, end quote. <laughs> and so I'm just going to roll this conversation forward a little faster. Graybill, well, he came to me, Olson. Oh, okay. Well, uh, Graybill, am I not supposed to be telling? <laughs> Olson, it was supposed to be quite confidential, 
Graybill, oh, well, I won't tell. <laughs> then the church just laughs. <laughs> oh, another own goal. In 1982, Walter Ray was back, this time with his book, The White Lie. The attack that Zacherson had been anticipating had finally materialized. And after the more reserved and scholarly prophetess of health, The White Lie reads like a street fight. Beyond documenting instances of plagiarism, which are obviously a part of the book, Ray is telling a story about the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Basically, that since 1844... The Adventist church has warred against the gospel, like the church is allergic to the gospel, by preferring its own self-interest and that of James and Ellen White. Ray was no longer interested in merely demonstrating that Ellen White copied and was wrong for copying. He was taking aim at the entire Adventist church for aiding and abetting her. As Ray's friend Jim Wagner would say, quote, his research is not aimed at Mrs. White. It is aimed at our understanding of Mrs. White, end quote. I think maybe he might have been a little too, um, that's putting too fine of a point on it. It very much is still aimed at Ellen White. But yes, the, the larger issue is the, the, the myth of Ellen White that Adventism has created around her. That's his charge. Ray never intended to call his book The White Lie. In fact, he, he as I said, he had another title that I cannot remember for the life of me. But anyways, he said he had received some good counsel not to call his book The White Lie. He calls it good counsel. But as he put it, quote, the message in the book will show that all of us that carry on a legend about anyone or anything are party to a white lie, end quote. The book is about Ellen White and her use of sources, but it is really about the church that concealed these facts and turned Ellen White into a myth. And so it's a deeply personal book for Walter Ray because Ray himself, right, he had been that deeply devout follower of Ellen White, doing what he felt the church wanted him to do before realizing that he was only helping to build a legend. And so he writes, quote, With the endorsement of the Glendale meeting and its committee, with their agreement that the material was alarming and people should be told, shown in a vote of 18 to nothing, I was blind to the actions and rage to come against me. Thus, the white lie was born, end quote. All right, let me just state, I think Walter Ray uh, consistently in those of his friends, consistently overstated whatever endorsement he felt that he had gotten at the Glendale meeting in January of 1980. The vote was not to approve all of Walter Ray's conclusions. In fact, if you read some of the letters of the people who were there who were not named Walter Ray, some of them expressed deep misgivings about Walter Ray. <laughs> and, and, uh, and there's been hesitation about his involvement in this project that, uh, that goes back to 1978. So, uh, you know, he looked at this as like a, a you know, 100% of everybody voted in my favor for my conclusions and my research and all of these sort of things. It's like this big endorsement of his uh, project. And so he was blindsided when uh, when the church went with um, with Veltman to continue his research, right? He kind of looks at it as a betrayal. We talked about that in the last episode. So anyways, with, with such a genesis, you know, with the Glendale meeting and his understanding of the Glendale meeting, one can understand why there are layers to this book. There is, of course, the data that Ellen White borrowed. There are copious examples of that. There may be a hundred pages of that. I haven't counted. There's a lot. But there's uh, another layer, Ray's interpretation of that data. There's that distinction again between the research and the interpretation of the research. Okay, she copied, but why? What does it mean that she copied? That's the interpretation. 
On top of that, you have another layer. Ray trying to deconstruct the myth of Ellen White and occasionally religion as a whole. There's another layer. Ray explaining how Adventism works and Ellen White's role in the church for those readers who may be unfamiliar with what Adventists believe and teach and those sort of things. And then there's another layer, Ray's reading of Adventist history. Well, anyways, you, you get the idea. There's these layers. It's the data. It's his interpretation of the data. It's Ray trying to deconstruct the myth of Ellen White. That's another layer in the book and sometimes religion as a whole. Uh, the, the fourth layer is uh, you know explaining how Adventism works to outsiders. There's that thread that runs through the book. And in the fifth layer, his reading of Adventist history. And there, there might be more. I'm not trying to be exhaustive here. My point is simply that in trying to understand or review the white lie, I, I think you have to address all of these layers separately and how successful he was in, uh, in achieving those objectives in each of those layers. For instance, I think the data on Ellen White's borrowing was very helpful. When Ray puts two quotes up side by side, he invites the reader to see for themselves, right? It's a very accessible way to understand what he's talking about. And this data is not easily dismissed. Zacherson, Provencha, and others were right that it needed to be studied and dealt with. And Ray was doing the church a service by taking on this research and then sharing it. He published it in a very accessible form. Now, it was not a cheap book back then, but it's free now online, so you can read it if you want. I'm not going to go through all of Ray's examples. Um, that could We could do a whole... My goodness, I don't know how many episodes we could possibly do on, uh, on, on examples of Ellen White's borrowing and what it all means. I mean, it's like a whole podcast we could devote to that, which we're not going to do. More persuasive, perhaps, than any single example of Ellen White's copying is the total weight of it in Ray's book. Right? It's not like, oh, she copied in this passage from that passage. It's here's, let's say, a hundred pages of her copying, like when you just take the the total sum of it, which of course is not even close to a fraction of a majority of her copying, um, when, when you take it all, it's like that has a weight, that's an argument in and of itself. The totality of the evidence is an argument in and of itself. And then there's that circumstantial evidence. And not all of this is found in the white lie. I'm just kind of assembling from things I've read in that book and I've heard elsewhere just to make the point of uh, how circumstantial evidence can pile up. So anyways, for instance, Ellen White went to hear Foy preach in the early days, but she didn't copy his vision, and she ended up repeating it like very similarly as if she had had that vision too. Okay. She heard him share his vision. She said she didn't copy his vision and that she had one that was very similar to it. Okay, fine. Ellen White had an article by Joseph Turner in her house advocating for a shut door, but she said she didn't read it until she had her own vision about the shut door. Okay, Ellen White had health literature in her house sometime later, but she didn't read any of it because she wanted to write out what she had seen in vision first and not be influenced by it, even though what she saw in vision was remarkably similar to what was in that literature in her house. Ellen White had Paradise Lost on a high shelf, but she didn't read it before she was done writing out a very similar vision than what's contained in that book. Are we to believe that all of this is just a coincidence? That she just consistently had access to information, but didn't copy it, and then had a vision that was remarkably similar to, the, to, to what she had access to in her house? Once or twice, sure. 
But I mean, over and over and over and over again, are we expected to believe that some of Ellen White's insights, which she claimed to learn about in vision, were not from the books that she had easy access to in her house? And, and that her vision showed her some of the very phrases and ideas that were contained in those books that were in her house? And an issue I don't hear many people talking about is you don't need books to hear about ideas. Sometimes we hear things and we forget where they came from. And we think, oh, that was my idea. And then my wife reminds me, no, that was my idea. Bottom line, are we to believe that Ellen White got this information from visions and not from the books and magazines she conveniently had in her house? Or she got it from fellow believers who had read these books and magazines and probably talked about them, right? Are we to believe she didn't get, get her information from those conversations that she overheard? You couldn't isolate yourself completely from the ideas that were going around in their world. Now, Occam's razor would suggest that the simplest explanation is to be preferred. If I tell you that I had a vision that showed me some information, I also had a book in my house that had the same information or similar information, which would you believe? Occam's razor would say, well, the simplest explanation is that you read the book and then portrayed it as coming from a vision. Now, obviously, the issues are much more nuanced than that. You can't just rope together all of these circumstances as if they're all equal. There's, there's, there's differences between them. But I, I just want the Avenist listening to appreciate the challenge being presented here. This is circumstantial evidence, to be sure. But they are dubious circumstances, and it's one after the other, after the other, after the other. Now, I will say that God can work in dubious circumstances, my little pastor hat that I'm putting on here, right? Because after all, Mary got pregnant even though she was betrothed to Joseph. Were people really expected to believe that the Holy Spirit got Mary pregnant and it wasn't that, hey, two young people in love couldn't keep their hands off of each other, right? I mean, Occam's razor <laughs> would suggest the simplest explanation is the most preferable. That is... That Mary and Joseph had a little hanky-hanky going on behind the inn, and, uh, and then they tried to portray it as the Holy Spirit doing this, right? That's what Occam's razor would suggest. But, you know, if you believe these things in the Bible, then you have to believe that that isn't what happened, even though it is the most likely, even though it happens all the time. Uh, you know, you, you have to believe the unbelievable thing if you really believe that God was a part of this story if you really believe that, uh, that Jesus is the Son of God. So, God can work in dubious circumstances. We cannot discount that. Is that the normal mode of operation? No, right? I don't get visions for most of the... I, don't, I would love to have visions that showed me what to write for these episodes. That would be really helpful. I have to read books. That's where I get my information. And if I say, uh, I learned this fact or that fact... Uh, I think you all can safely assume I probably got it from a book or from a conversation or a paper or something, right? You're not going to assume that I got it from a vision because that isn't normal. Anyways, moving on. Ray's research was sometimes sloppy, and it focused on what Ellen White chose to borrow, not what she left out or changed. And this is an important point, okay? This may seem like you're nitpicking here. But the White Estate had noticed his approach with him years before, and which caused them, as early as 1978, as I mentioned, to want a scholar to do this research and not a, a pastor. And I'm not saying scholars are better than pastors. I'm a pastor. But the work demanded a, a, a certain methodology, even a certain 
temperament that, uh, that the White estate didn't feel Ray possessed. Now, why does this matter? Well, since Ellen White copied so much material, it's instructive to figure out what she didn't copy as well. Or, when she did copy, what words did she change or omit as she copied? Now, Kevin Morgan doesn't think we should use the word copied. He makes this very clear in his book, The White Lie Soap, because it implies perhaps mindless cutting and pasting. And he's right that many times she was very careful about what she copied from other sources. It wasn't just like, oh, let me just take this chapter from so-and-so and put it in Desire of Ages, boom, I'm done. All right, it, it wasn't that. Um, she was often very, very careful about what she was choosing to copy. Not always, but but usually. Uh, particularly, I would say she's not always as uh, careful when dealing with historical figures where Don McAdams has has shown she even copied the errors that came from uh, uh, the historians that she was relying on, which is a whole other other problem. But my point here is studying what she left out or changed is an important part of understanding Ellen White's use of sources because it shows how she interacted with the material. And I should say I'm using that word interacted very intentionally. It's a word I've, I've noticed uh, Denis Fortin use because uh, I want to mention that because I don't want to be accused of plagiarism. Heaven forbid. Moving on, Ray's cynical reading of Adventism's origins is uh, less helpful in The White Lie. Because after noting that neither Ellen nor James could write, Ray tells us what happens next. Quote, gradually came the brilliant experiment that made it all work. The cap sheaf of genius. Why not steal it all in the name of God? End quote. I don't know how else to put this. Except to say, this is just sheer nonsense. Ray says that early Adventists were bent on a real holy war. And, quote, one wonders if the real issue was not the same one it always seems to be in religion. Who is going to control the concessions in the here and in the hereafter? End quote. Again, it's ridiculous. The data Ray offers doesn't support these conclusions. It's no wonder why church leaders felt they needed somebody else to continue Ray's research. There's no evidence that James and Ellen ever conspired together to be like, well, look, neither of us really knows how to write. Let's just steal the things that we want to say and we'll do it in the name of God to make money because we want to control people's lives here and we want to control their lives in the life to come. I mean, there's, there's, just, I mean, there's just zero evidence of that. I mean, it's not like he's he's reaching that conclusion after finding a few pieces. I mean, there's just none. And, you know, look, Ellen White is fair game for those who want to challenge her theology, her borrowing, and so on. But there's no evidence that she or James or Joseph Bates ever founded the Seventh-day Adventist Church for money or merely to control people. I, you know, Joseph Bates gave away all of his money as he was founding the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Like, he was much wealthier before he ever set out on this path. Uh, James had a good business sense, undoubtedly could have made a ton more money outside of the church. He was always wanting for money. He was in personal debt because of the church. Um, they dealt with extreme poverty in the early years, her and uh, James. I mean, just to say this is just completely crazy. And, of course, to paint all religions with the same brush, as if all religions are concerned about controlling the concessions in the here and then the hereafter, is, is likewise absurd. 
Now, Ray did have a funny line. I can appreciate uh, a good zinger, even if I don't agree with it. Uh, <laughs> talking about the health message, he said, quote, The church has attempted to demonstrate that one may live longer on this earth by following certain health customs and practices. But there is abundant evidence to prove that the longer they live, the meaner they get and the harder they may be to get along with, end quote. <laughs> uh, that's not a fair statement, but it is funny. In his colorful way, Ray offered his own interpretation of the four horsemen of the apocalypse at the end of the book. Not a serious interpretation, honestly, but, uh, you know, he's just having fun with it. The white rider was Donald Davenport and his financial scandal, which is, again, something we're going to talk about uh, soon here in the episode of Avenus History Extra. The red rider, the rider of the red horse, I should say, was Desmond Ford. Again, talk about him in a couple episodes on this podcast. And Ray himself was the rider on the black horse. Uh, you know, he's a part of this uh, four horsemen, Davenport, Ford, Ray, that's FDR, as uh, the little acronym goes. Now, Ray painted Ford's work as merely disturbing the church, while Ray's own work was downright frightening, he said. He calls himself a guerrilla fighter and that he was aiming for the jugular. Yeah. And, you know, all these other kind of uh, <laughs> self-aggrandizing statements. Uh, he may, I don't know how seriously he meant them all, um, but clearly interested in his own place in Avenus history. And, and, and he doesn't think that he plays a small role because the final horseman, although not identified in terms of, uh, in historical terms, uh, nevertheless, Ray reminds us that his name was Death. In other words, you're going to have Davenport, you're going to have Ford, you're going to have Ray, and then what? The church is going to die? Well, that is yet to happen. Overall, I think the white lie is a stinging denunciation of what George Knight has called the wonderful world of Ellen White, right? The myth of Ellen White. Ray drew attention to the complicity of the church in not educating its members about what they knew was true, but never looked into. And again, I think there's a lot of personal uh, feelings of uh, Ray's own situation is being uh, put into the book here. And, uh, you know, just as much as Walter Way or Ron Numbers, it was this lack of leadership from the church, which has harmed the role of Ellen White in the church. Now, the white lie is also the, uh, the, the presentation of research, which served as the basis of future studies on Ellen White. The research was helpful, I think, but it was also very sloppy. Sometimes Ray uh, gets page numbers wrong. Methodologically, it wasn't very rigorous. He made exaggerated claims, sometimes deeply misrepresented bits of Avenus history, as I've talked about. Sometimes Ray does land his punches, such as when he notes how Ellen White could be really harsh with her testimonies about people and then publish them. And, you know, the names could be removed. But uh, if you're familiar with the situation, you might be able to figure out who she's writing about. And, uh, you know, they, they could be really painful for people even if you did believe that they were messages coming from God. I mean, the, the way that they were handled could be painful. And this is something we don't, even to this day, we don't really talk about. As one member of the committee that met with Ray at Glendale said, quote, the facts are undeniable, but do they negate her inspiration? End quote. That was the question. Naturally, Avenus leaders weren't enthusiastic about Ray's work. Even people who otherwise wanted to see more research into Ellen White's use of sources. Ray Cottrell thought, uh, thought Ray's problem was his rigid view of inspiration. 
as if copying means she can't have been inspired, right? Ray's saying that these are not mutually exclusive things. She can copy and still be inspired, but because Ray uh, still has a very rigid view of inspiration, uh, he can't come to the conclusion that she could have been inspired. Ted Heppenstall felt that the General Conference didn't appreciate how deeply Avenus members and pastors were shaken by the firing of Ray and Desmond Ford, and that more study was needed immediately. For his part, Desmond Ford thought Ray had a tendency to jump to conclusions and was too negative. Though, again, Ford insisted that the research needed to be done and the church needs to stop making it worse by treating L.O.Y. as an extension of the Bible. And of course, you know, I should add the White Estate wrote their own reply to the white lie, which you can read online. Jonathan Butler, by no means a reactionary, for those who are familiar with his work, took issue with Ray's book. Butler praised Ray for, quote, raising highly important questions, however ineptly or cruelly he has framed them, end quote. I believe Butler was on to something when he wrote, quote, What proves most unsatisfying about Ray's interpretation is that it betrays the same rigid fundamentalism of his earlier years, albeit now as a naughty fundamentalism. Ray still can accept only an all-or-nothing solution. Either Ellen White is infallible or a fake. Either her writings are the immaculate conception of the Holy Spirit or they are a literary hoax. The passion by which he now rejects Mrs. White reveals the absolute hold on him of his fundamentalist understandings of inspiration, end quote. Nevertheless, Butler insisted that Ray's data, again, needed to be taken seriously, even if Ray himself could be ridiculous in how he presented it. But Butler didn't completely blame Ray, as he noted in his conclusion, quote, I look forward to the day that the church would no longer spawn either an early or a later Walter Ray, end quote, which is to say, Butler looked forward to a day when the church doesn't create fundamentalists, either of true believer types or of true skeptic types. Eldon Thompson from Walla Walla called the book a great disappointment in the sense that it wasn't as scholarly and sober as the academic community had hoped. Like Butler, Thompson said that, quote, the content deserves attention, but seldom have I read a book where style so thoroughly overwhelms content, end quote. Thompson hoped Ray's research would help the Adventist church deal more realistically with Ellen White in spite of Ray. And <laughs> in a coup of a comment, Thompson says that true believers like Ray are the reason why church leaders often feel the need to cover things up. <laughs> Just brutal. Just brutal. You know, I, when you have a kind of, uh, oh, this is my characterization, not Thompson's, but when you kind of have a, an aggressive, militant, rabid church member, you are often afraid to tell the truth to them. And we saw this with the 1919 Bible Conference with, with Washburn and Holmes. And, uh, you know, we've talked about this in the past, that if you want your leaders to tell you the truth, be the kind of member who will not crucify them for telling you the truth. There's a, there's a sense here where Thompson is saying that there, there's fault on both sides, both with Ray and with the church, because Ray is a product of the church. But there's also, that fault is between Ray and the church, but also within the church, 
there's a dynamic where maybe leaders bear some fault because they don't want to tell the truth because they're scared or they're, they're, they don't want to investigate it. But there's also faults on the other side in the pews where you have members who don't want to hear the truth. And so if the leaders are scared to tell the truth and the members are scared to hear the truth, this situation is, is inevitable where somebody finally will and they may not do it in the nicest, even the most accurate way. And a lot of people are going to be shocked and have their faith destroyed. And here we are. Now, I could do a whole episode on the white lie and the reviews of the white lie and the conversation after the white lie. And maybe I'll talk about it in a future Avenus History Extra episode. My producer, do I have a producer? Stop me from promising more episodes. My goodness, I'm trying to wrap up a podcast, not start a new one. Anyway, sorry about that. That was supposed to be behind the scenes. Uh, anyways, we need to tackle one more topic before we go. This is already the longest episode I've ever done. So yay. As I mentioned, Fred Veltman was eventually chosen to take over Walter Ray's research. Now, that doesn't mean Walter Ray stopped doing his research or had to hand it over to Veltman or whatever. Okay, I want you to understand that. Just that Veltman was the church's choice to study the desire of ages. And as Ray had been doing, and to report on her literary borrowing, Ellen White's literary borrowing. Now, I say Veltman was the church's choice, but he was not the church's first choice. An Aussie named Jim Cox was the first choice. And as Bob Olson would admit later, the GC felt obliged to, quote, choose somebody whose work would be recognized by the liberal crowd as well as by the conservatives. Otherwise, you weren't going to accomplish much, end quote. So I guess that was Jim Cox. Jim initially said the project would take six months, which, oh my goodness, no, <laughs> it's not. And uh, Arthur White suggested that a committee be formed around him to, quote, guarantee that the White estate interests would be protected at all times, end quote. Bob Olson agreed, saying that, quote, we can stay close enough to him so that the conclusions he arrives at would be essentially the same as the conclusions we would come to were we doing the work ourselves, end quote. Now, Bob Olson later regretted his choice of words. Walter Ray even tells us that. But it became hard to shake, and understandably so, shake that impression that the white estate was not really interested in fair and open research. But fortunately, or unfortunately, Jim Cox ended up taking over at Avondale College in Australia, and somebody else needed to be found to do the research. So Fred Veltman was that somebody else. Veltman was not an enthusiastic choice necessarily. He had been implicated in the Desmond Ford affair as somebody who apparently said that he would resign in solidarity if Ford were fired. What's more, a letter Veltman wrote irritated the Australasian division, that's uh, Parmenter's division, and Parmenter questioned why the General Conference would uh, trust Veltman to do this delicate research if he was suspected of being a Ford sympathizer. I know we talk about Ford a lot. We haven't really talked about Ford yet. We're, we're getting there. We're getting there. But Neil Wilson had confidence in Veltman and told him, quote, Fred, we want the facts. Let me assure you, Fred, that we want you to work in a completely free and responsible manner without the fear of being pressured or influenced to come up with certain conclusions. What we want is the truth, end quote. Now, in an earlier draft of this very same letter, Neil had written that, quote, we want the facts 
whether they be welcome or unwelcome, end quote. But he crossed out that later part. Bob Olson felt the same way. Quote, Fred, there is only one way to do this job and do it right. You will have to look at all of the evidence, that which we might call positive and that which we might consider negative, and then let everything fall into its place, end quote. So I understand because of that earlier Olson statement about Jim Cox, there's, a, there, there's been a feeling that has endured ever since that the white estate kind of was pulling strings behind the scenes to engineer the outcome in their favor. But if you're going to believe that letter, you have to believe the other letters, which assure Fred Veltman that he has a free hand to, uh, to examine all the evidence and then whatever the conclusion is, the conclusion is, right? So which, which do you believe? Personally, I, I tend to believe the latter letters uh, because, uh, like I said, Bob Olson said he regretted his choice of words, that that wasn't what he had meant when he was talking about how the white estate could engineer the outcome of the study. And uh, I'm not sure what he thought, how he thought those words could be construed differently because <laughs> they are rather plain. However, uh, in his, his most recent statements, these, these are also private statements, okay? These are not just statements being released to the public to, to look like we have some autonomy here for Fred Veltman. These are private letters to Fred assuring him of his autonomy, not just from Neil, but from Bob Olson as well. So I, I tend to believe that he really did have freedom to come to his own conclusions. Uh, Veltman had a good handle on the complexity of this research and the environment he was researching in. He noted how Ellen White's defenders are seen as offering too little too late and that, quote, it is hard for the membership to understand why the leadership of the church only admits what it is forced to admit under pressure, end quote. Now, Veltman was careful not to make that criticism himself. He's just saying this is what people feel. But the fact that he repeated it to the general conference president <laughs> might, might suggest that he felt there was some validity to that sentiment. Why are we always behind? Why are we always only admitting to things when people twist our arms or back us into a corner? Like, why not get out in front of it? This seems to be how Veltman wanted to understand his research. I want to get out in front of it. The initial plan was hugely ambitious. I mean, 75% of the Desire of Ages would be indexed, along with Ellen White's other writings on the life of Christ, that this was only the, by the way, the first of 11 goals. Other goals included the study of Ellen White's use of literary assistance and the extent of their help with, their, with her writing. There would be a study of plagiarism in the 19th century and particularly with religious writers. You know, how common was this borrowing? Uh, what was the law regarding these things? Uh, an evaluation of how Ellen White compared to other 19th century writers. It was a very, very ambitious plan, so ambitious that Veltman suggested he might need a computer. And that is my very favorite detail of this entire report. <laughs> I might need a computer for this. It seems like a lot of work. Hang in there, Veltman. The Macintosh was coming. I actually don't know if he got a Mac or a PC. If somebody knows, let me know. I'd be curious to, to find out. Veltman soon realized that this was going to take a lot longer than six months or uh, later on, the two years that he would be given. In the end, it took 10 years until the publication of his research. He finished it up in, at the end of 1988, so uh, eight years. Now, he wasn't working like hardcore at the very, very beginning. It took a little while to get the team together and get office space and get, a, get his system going. Uh, but 
we usually say it took eight years to do the research, and then the, the report of his research appeared two years after that, so 10 years in total. Now, again, we could do a whole episode just on the Veltman report, and uh, but we're going to be content with just some highlights that I'm going to pull out of it. It's like 2,500 pages, my friends, 2,500 pages. Uh, ain't nobody got time to read that, but we can give you some, some highlights from it. Uh, highlight one. Walter Ray and Robert Brinsme were actually very happy to help Veltman, supplied him with materials to help expedite the process. Sometimes we can conceive of these theological conflicts as battles to the death, but, you know, people remain friends. I mean, even Walter Ray, just weeks before his uh, L.A. Times article, not his L.A. Times article, before the L.A. Times article came out, uh, he was getting visited by people. Uh, I think Ted Heppenstall visited him that month. Later on, of course, Veltman would visit him. Ford would visit him. I mean, you know, these people still carried on relationships, even if they strongly disagreed with each other. And uh, anyways, uh, Walter Ray, to his credit, by the way, I, I will say this, and I didn't say this earlier, and maybe I should have. The tone that Walter Ray takes in The White Lie is not the tone he has always taken. In the 1980s, uh, excuse me, in the 1980s, in 1980, uh, he vacillated between this kind of accusatory, conspiratorial tone that we see in The White Lie and wanting to be very agreeable, wanting to find some kind of way of reconciliation. It was very much like M.L. Andreas in, in that sense. Uh, it, it wasn't just a 100% of the time an obstinate, you know, strong, uh, bullheaded person. You know, he wanted to work with the brethren. He didn't want to leave the Adventist church. He didn't want to lose Ellen White. You know, he, he wanted to work with the brethren, but he felt betrayed by them. And we covered that, so I'm not going to go over that again. But it should not surprise you that uh, these people are not one-dimensional. Highlight number two. Veltman's analysis only covered 15 chapters, or about 17% of the entire book. Now, anyone who wants to complain that it takes eight years to study 17% of a book needs to try it in an age before computers. Now, again, I don't know if he actually got the computer. Maybe he did. But even with computers, uh, it's still a lot of work. It would not take eight years now, obviously, but it's still a ton of work. I mean, you are talking about a lady who had hundreds of books in her library, let's say, uh, and she wrote her book, The Desire of Ages, and you are trying to go through all of the books she had access to. The hundreds of books, maybe thousands of books, given that she had friends and she could have conceivably gotten books from them. You know, you're trying to go through hundreds or thousands of books to find even just a sentence that she may have taken from uh, from one of those other books. Now, in practice, it was not that difficult all the time. And once you once you found a book that she copied from, she tended to copy more than one sentence from it. So um, it was in the dozens I think of of books that they found as her sources. So, but you know, you got to narrow it down to those dozens, right? You got to narrow it down to those specific books, and you can only do that by going through all the books that she had available on that particular subject. And uh, once you do that, I mean, you're going line by line, and even then, you're you're. It's not just these verbatim quotes that she's taking or, or sentences that she's taking. Sometimes it could be a phrase. Sometimes it could be, you know, she paraphrased what she read. And so is this connected to this book? You know, she reworded it, but it sounds really similar. Uh, did she get it from the book or not? Or maybe sometimes people just say things that sound similar to other books. 
but they didn't necessarily read that book. It's complicated. Anyways, um, I should note also in Veltman's defense about how long it took that I believe after the first two years, Veltman, uh, the the GC funding uh, slowed down because they realized this is taking a lot longer than we expected. It's going to be enormously expensive just to keep paying uh, Veltman and his secretary full time to be doing this. So uh, they reduced their funding and Veltman had to teach half time. So for six years, he was only working half time on this project, I believe. Uh, anyways, highlight three, Veltman concluded that about 31% of the desire of ages was borrowed from other sources. Now that's the big number that got spread around, 31%. This was significantly less than the 80 or 90% which Ray had claimed, of course, and uh, it was not even fully the point. Veltman was reluctant to put a percentage on the borrowing because he felt, and I think he's right here, that the percentage doesn't actually mean that much. When you say Ellen White borrowed about 31% of her writings uh, in, this, in, you know, in, the, in The Desire of Ages from other books, what are we actually saying? Is 30% a lot or a little? What's the standard of measurement here? Is anything over 0% a lot? Because I think from our modern perspective, that's what we look at, right? There should be no borrowing at all. So any percentage over zero is bad. And, and, but for others, uh, people who they looked at this and said 30% isn't that bad. Isn't it far more useful to talk about how or what she borrowed than to talk about what percentage she borrowed? That is, it's more significant if Ellen White borrowed, let's say, a moral judgment from another author than if she borrowed a historical date from another author. So what is she borrowing? How is she using it? These are, to Veltman, and I would share this as well, these are the more interesting questions. Uh, you know, conceivably, and this is not true of Ellen White, but conceivably... I could have a book where I just quote uh, people, and maybe I don't give them credit, right, like I should. But let's just say I just have a bunch of statements from other people, um, and I'm, and then after I, I maybe I don't give them credit, but maybe I format it in a way where it looks like I'm, I'm responding to statements somebody else made. Uh, you know, a high percentage of that book is going to be statements from other people. That doesn't mean, what does that mean? Well, uh, like what, what judgment do you walk away with if you find out that 60% or 40% or whatever of, of something I wrote is, is from somebody else that I didn't give citation to? It, it's not so much that it's 40% or 31% or whatever. It's what, what genre is this? How is this material being used? How am I interacting with what is being quoted? You know what I mean? So... Anyways, it's like the percentage is not really the most interesting question. What's interesting, uh, I think, about this is um, Veltman found that Ella White's roughest drafts contained more borrowing than her published versions. And this is likely due to her literary assistance, right? So when somebody goes around saying Ella White borrowed 31% from other writers... The reality is, in her first draft at least, she intended to borrow more. But then she and her assistants whittled that down. What does that process tell us about her borrowing? 
What does it mean that she intended to borrow more? Or maybe, you know, maybe that was never her final intention. I don't know. Maybe that's just part of the the rough draft process that because, you know, you, you, you're just kind of getting things down on paper and then you kind of shape it. Uh, maybe that was always the intention. Or maybe if Ellen White had her way and she did the book from beginning to end, it would have had more than 31%. I don't know, but there's a conversation to be had there as well. Additionally, saying that she borrowed about 31% doesn't tell us how she borrowed in the sense of, was it word for word? Is she just copying and pasting from other people? Is she loosely paraphrasing what they wrote? So saying that she borrowed a certain percentage from other writers doesn't actually tell us that much at all. And yet, as Veltman noted, Avenus were fighting over percentages, as if her claim to be a prophet stood or fell based on whether she borrowed 10% or 80%. Nevertheless, about 31% was much higher than F.D. Nickel had imagined in the 1950s, and almost certainly much, much higher than any Avenus members had ever dreamed. Okay, so there's that shock value of the 31% back then. Today, I think we can be more sober-minded about it. I mean, even as Veltman was, it's like the, the, the percentage just means nothing. What matters is what she did with it, um, how, that, how the, the stuff she borrowed made its way through the drafts. There's an interesting conversation there. Uh, you know, was it a paraphrase? Was it word for word? Like These are the other questions that are needing to be answered before 31% has any meaning or has much meaning whatsoever. All right, moving on. Highlight number four. Veltman used the metaphor of Ellen White as a builder, and I thought this was interesting, to characterize her borrowing. He said she, quote, built out of the common quarry of stones, not a replica of another's work, but rather a customized literary composition which reflects the particular faith and Christian hope she was called to share with her fellow Adventists and the Christian community at large. And I, I like that image. Uh, you can help people kind of conceptualize what was going on here. It's like, these are the stones a lot of people had to work with. And uh, when she used these stones, she wasn't building the same thing other people were building with these words. She had a different purpose for what she was uh, borrowing from the source that she had borrowed it from. And so this is not just kind of blind plagiarism. Uh, she had a purpose for it. Now, is that going to convince everybody? No, of course not. Um, <laughs> but it, it, is, it is an interesting metaphor, and I just thought it was worth sharing. Highlight number five. Veltman admits that, quote, Ellen White's claim for the heavenly origin of her content is at the crux of the source problem, end quote. Now, this is really, I think, what it came down to. Not so much that she borrowed, but that she claimed to be a prophet whose revelations came from God. This, Veltman tells us, quote, strikes at the heart of her honesty, her integrity, and therefore her trustworthiness, end quote. And along those same lines, we might ask, why was she so in need of other people's words to explain what she saw? And that is a puzzle I don't know that we will ever quite solve. I've read some theories about that. Um, that she needed them to jog her memory and all of that. But I don't know. That's a hard one to answer. Uh, highlight number six. 
Marion Davis, one of Ellen White's literary assistants, had a decisive role in the final version of The Desire of Ages. This, I think, is still not widely understood in the Adventist church. As Veltman reports, quote, We found that Marion Davis rearranged paragraphs, modified sentence and chapter length, and generally followed through with the many details involved in getting a book to press, end quote. Veltman believed that more credit, more credit needed to be given to these literary assistants like Marion Davis, which is why I've heard Kevin Morgan, Denis Fortin, and others recommend various remedies in future printings of Ellen White's books. Maybe it would read, uh, Desire of Ages by Ellen White, edited or prepared by Marion Davis. Nevertheless, Ellen White, Veltman tells us, quote, composed the basic content of the text, end quote, means a Desire of Ages text. Highlight seven. Veltman confesses that personally, his respect and appreciation for Ellen White grew as a result of this study. Now, that might not be surprising. You know, the skeptics are going to tell us he was a professor in a church. He's on the payroll. They're paying for the study. He has a relationship with both Neil Wilson and the White Estate. Uh, you know, how could he come to any other conclusion? But I, I should say, we shouldn't take that for granted. After all, Walter Ray began his study, and he was a firm believer in Ellen White's inspiration too. There's no guarantee that, uh, you know, he and he, by the way, Ray had relationships with the White Estate, too. He had good relationships in his conference. He was on his conference executive committee. He had no reason to jeopardize all that either. So let's not take it for granted that just because somebody's a church employee, and he's going to always come to the conclusion that the church wants. When Veltman finished his research in 1988, church leaders took a little victory lap, and, uh, and some feared that'd be the end of it. But the report did appear two years later for sale. It was eight volumes for $100. And I am very delighted to tell you that you can get it for free on the General Conference's website. Walter Ray felt vindicated, of course. Veltman's report was way too deep for most Adventists to want to crack and way too expensive to purchase. Ray said that he was often asked why he didn't wait for the church's research to come out. You know, it's a criticism he said he fielded often enough, you know, why do you think you know more than the church and all that kind of stuff? Wait and see what the church says and then come to your own conclusions. Well, Ray said, if I waited for the church's research to come out, I would have waited a long time and paid a lot of money. How many Adventists ever read all eight volumes? I mean, how many Adventists ever read all eight volumes? If you are one of them, give yourself a pat on the back right now, because that is serious commitment. So Ray wondered in his uh, conspiratorial way, was the, the, the depth, the inscrutability of the, of the research, you know, it was kind of, you had to really pay attention because it was complex. Like Ray did a, he gave his own system for evaluating uh, a particular borrowed sentence unit. You know, was it a loose paraphrase, a strict paraphrase, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. He had his own system of how to evaluate these things. It was complex and most people were not going to understand it. And so Ray, like I said, in his conspiratorial way, was wondering, uh, maybe this was all part of the strategy to do this study, to have it take way too long so that people could settle down and maybe forget about it. And, um, and then when it comes out to be so unaffordable and so unreadable for the average Adventist that they would never, they would never see that it had vindicated Ray. 
Well, I don't know that that's true. I think it was just designed, uh, excuse me, I think it was just the nature of the scope and methodology that made it uh, rather ironically really inaccessible to, <laughs> to the membership of the church that it was trying to inform. And in that sense, Walter Ray's The White Lie still held the field. It came out first. It was more readable. It was more affordable. You know, if, what were you going to do? Grab a 2,500-page book or a you know 400-page book to understand a subject? Now, Veltman did want to slim it down, and eventually his research was boiled down. So they're, they're, you know, it's not like it stayed that way forever. Um, Ray wrote Veltman after he completed his research, and he quoted his friend Jerry Wiley, quote, Well, they labored and labored and came forth a mouse, end quote. Eight years and hundreds of thousands of dollars later. And that was a detail, by the way, Ray made sure to mention very often. Look how long it took. Look how expensive it was. All to come to the conclusions that I had come to years earlier. The bottom line for Ray was this. Mrs. White did plagiarize, and she lied about doing it. That, that's really what it came down to, because if she lied, then, of course, she is at fault, obviously. But also the church then is complicit in covering it up. And that's what it came down to for Ray. And Ray thought that uh, Veltman had come to the same conclusion. Veltman, of course, um, never came to that conclusion. <laughs> he never explicitly said that that was true. But Ray's like, well, of course, he can't say that it's true. But if you look at his research, the data is clear enough. Ray also continued to poke uh, to other Adventists. He deeply appreciated Ron Graybill's dissertation when it came out, claiming that it helped, again, make his case Ray said he would recommend Graybill's dissertation to everyone. The only question Ray was afraid people would ask him was, why were you fired and Ron Graybill isn't? That, uh, yeah, hang on to that question. <laughs> um, Ray, Ray also smarted over a comment Veltman had made back in 1980 where he apparently said Ray would have gotten a D- minus in his class. I haven't been able to find that comment, but I've seen it mentioned a number of times. Anyways, uh, maybe I would have gotten a better grade, Ray, rude to Veltman, quote, if I had received the time, money, and help that was assigned to you, end quote. Well, despite Ray's confidence in his own vindication, confidence he never lacked, I should add, if it wasn't clear uh, by this point, many church leaders felt a vindication of their own. Avenus had some years now to get used to the idea that Ellen White had borrowed, and when Veltman's verdict came in, it was much less than what Ray had been claiming. Ray had said 80-90%. Uh, Veltman was saying about 31%. That's less than half, right? And Veltman managed to arrive at that verdict without alleging that the entire Avenus church was a scam. <laughs> Veltman uh, also wanted others to have the opportunity to study Ellen White's writings as carefully as he did. And by the way, during the process of his research... Access to her writings for research purposes was, was granted, was open. It remains open to this day. Although her writings have all been posted online, people can conduct research at a number of places around the world and pursue those lines of questions in various collections of documents at these research centers. And I should add that, that these began to be opened in the, in the 70s. But, uh, you know, I think that the point here is that we ought to acknowledge the debt that we, especially those of us who do this research, and you guys uh, also owe it because you're listening to this and because I have benefited from this research, you have benefited from this research, and we owe this debt to Peterson, McAdams, Numbers, Veltman, and yes, even Walter Ray. 
The 1970s and 1980s were a tumultuous period, and we will never understand Ellen White the same way we did before those decades. There is only Ellen White before 1970 and Ellen White after 1970, and there is no going back. And thanks to their research, future generations are able to do their own research too. I've said it before. I don't think we realize how privileged we are to have all of Ellen White's writings online and the ability to visit various archives and research centers. Now, I'm not saying that as a, you know, Ellen White is, um, I'm not saying that as a pastor. I'm not even saying that as a Seventh-day Adventist church member. I, I'm saying we don't often appreciate this because we, uh, those of us who are especially are younger, I should say, you're younger-ish, we don't realize how hard it was to access those writings in this research. And we have lived for some decades now in, uh, in a time when you could get her writings easily on the CD-ROM. Remember those days, some of you? Or now on the internet. And all of them are on the internet. And it's, it's fantastic for anybody who wants to do their own research in Ellen White, whether you believe that she's a prophet or not. It's fantastic for all of us. This is a relatively new thing in Adventism, not only because the technology behind the internet has made it cheap and, and easy to get the material out there, but because I think the, the, the articles and books and the research conducted during the 1970s and 80s have led to a mental shift where those custodians of Ellen White's writings have come to see the value of putting these things on the internet and in opening up research centers and archives. We should not take for granted that just because we had the internet, we were going to have all of Ellen White's writings. If, if those that have uh, custody of those writings don't feel there's any value to it, they wouldn't have done it. They wouldn't have done it. And, uh, but, they, but they did, and I think that is in large part due to not only the inherent mission of the White estate for people to read Ellen White, that's obviously a part of it, but also the, 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 the struggle and toil of those who wanted to pioneer studying Ellen White in the 70s and 80s. Whether you or I agree with all of their conclusions or not, I want to thank them for all that they have done. This podcast would not be possible without their work. And... You guys, if McAdams or whoever is listening, you guys are reaching new generations through people like me. And it has been an honor to benefit from your work and to pass it on. So where does this series, this little mini-series on Ellen White in modern Adventism or recent Adventism leave us? Where is Ellen White today? Again, this is not the scope of a podcast on history, but I will say a couple things here because really not much has changed. There are still problems to solve with Ellen White's writings, though um, there, have been, there has been some progress in, in books and articles that were written since the days of Ray and Feltman that have, I believe, again, made some progress. But the first step, I think, is to acknowledge that the challenge still exists. Not all the questions are answered. Walter Ray, despite his rhetorical hysterics, won't let us forget that Adventists have often claimed too much for her. The church had built the myth of Ellen White 
or at least had allowed it. Ron Graybill reminds us that the first seeds of the myth of Ellen White are found in Ellen White herself. Quote, when we look candidly at Ellen White's own statements about her inspiration and consider her silence on whether she made any errors, we realize that she herself had a hand in perpetuating inerrancy, end quote. She was not frank about the sources she used or how she used them. She was not frank about the crucial role her literary assistants played and the power they had to shape her words. She said that when she had a hard time finding the right word, God would reveal it to her. And when she takes her pen into her hand, it is God speaking to her with as clear a voice as any human in the room with her. She said that when she writes an article, it's never an expression merely of her own ideas, but that which God has revealed to her. She said that she only speaks of what she has seen. And these statements and others like them make it sound like she relied on no one but God for her writings. And, of course, there's a sense in which that could be true. But, of course, those statements lead people to think that other human authors had no role in this, that other human hands had no role in this. And it was never made clear, she never made it clear, that that was the case. That she routinely turned to other authors for words and even ideas. And yet, and yet, I am struck by something else Jonathan Butler wrote in his review of The White Lie. Ellen White may have borrowed from people like Henry Melville, Butler argues, but, quote, one key difference between Henry Melville's sermons and Ellen White's writings is that we remember her writings. Her impact on our memory is one mark of her inspiration for us, end quote. Which is to say, and I've said it before, Ellen White is more than her sources. She's even more than her writings as a whole. Despite the challenge to her integrity and the confusion over her inspiration that many people still face, she remains a powerful motherly figure in Adventism today. Some people have been beaten over the head with her writings. There's a lot of scars and a lot of war stories of how she's been used but many more, I think, have been blessed by her writings. And so there's this disconnect here where you might say, I can see the problem with Ellen White and how that might lead me to doubt her because she copied so much or borrowed. But my experience with her has been so positive that I still believe in her. In other words, I encounter people who say things like that, that it's a, my head kind of pulls me one way, my heart pulls me another way. Where is Ellen White these days? Some Adventists have walked away from Ellen White. Others are still true believers who dismiss any problems, aggressively so sometimes. But there are still others who pretty much uh, see uh, Ellen White much like they see the Bible today. That is, we're still wrestling with our faith and our doubt mingled together. Thanks so much for listening. I know it has been a long episode. Forgive me for that.
When you realize how few episodes we have left, I hope you'll understand why I'm trying to pack in as much as possible. I don't have forever as a podcaster, and uh, I appreciate your time in listening to this episode. We will talk again soon. Hey, it's me again. If this episode didn't quench your desire for more Avenus history content, then go subscribe to Avenus History Extra. It's a private podcast that I do for those who support the Avenus History Project. You can get access to Avenus History Extra on the website, which is avenushistoryproject.org, or by becoming a patron at patreon.com. Now, there's more variety at Avenus History Extra, in case you were wondering. I do some interviews. Sometimes I do bonus episodes. You know, I, we had a good episode here in the Avenus History Podcast, and I want to talk some more about it. Other times, I go behind the scenes at conferences I attend, like the Women in Seventh-day Adventist History Conference. What's more, just as a second announcement for you, Michael Campbell and I are leading a bus tour in October 2024. So if you want to go drive around New England a bit, see the, see the sights and have some fun, well, you can sign up for our bus tour newsletter, once again, at AdventistHistoryProject.org. And we're going to keep you up to date there about what you need to know to go and sign up for that and all of that. So just to be very, 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 very clear, we don't have a sign up for the bus tour itself, but it's a sign up for the newsletter so you can stay informed about the bus tour. So I don't have to make announcements every single time and interrupt these episodes and all of that. That's where those announcements are going to be. So if you're interested, head on over to the website. You can sign up for the bus tour newsletter over there. Okay, I think that about does it. Thanks again for listening.